The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we thank you for gathering us here, your people here in, in this place before you. Thank you. If we were just here by ourselves, that, that would be one thing, but most of all, we thank you that you have gathered us here with you here to commune with us, to meet with us, to teach and encourage and build us up. Great blessing, a gift from you, thank you. So please now do that, meet us here, open this word before us and teach us and build your church. So we ask you, Lord, build your church for good and for your honor. Thank you. Amen. Most people in Jesus' day were pretty impressed with the Pharisees. Of course, some folks, especially those who were on the outs in society, didn't really like them so much. Kind of viewed them as kind of a little holier than thou and a little bit judgmental. But most people looked at them and their families and thought, Man, these people are living right. I mean, they, they are following God, and God smiles upon them, and look what results. All kinds of good things in their lives. They're, they're, they hold positions of power. They're influential. They, they're beautiful people. They've got uh, influence. Uh, you know, man, that's the good life. We people now and then, who are prone to look at outward appearances often draw those kinds of conclusions. But Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. All nice and white and clean on the outside for sure, wearing really nice suits and ties and dresses and they had good hair and makeup and accessories that just popped. And they had lots of nice cars and houses and stuff. For sure, on the outside, everything looked good, and they were very religious, of course, and they were, they were very careful to find out what God required and to put their hand to do it, or conversely, if he forbid it, to, to keep their hand from touching it or holding on to it in any, in any way. They were very religious, clean on the outside, on, putting their hands on or keeping their hands off, either way, both, but inside, full of dead men's bones, tombs, no spiritual life in there. A fatal problem when we consider the teaching of the Bible. For instance, Psalm 24. The text there asks a rhetorical question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? That is, who can draw near to God and stand in his holy place, in the place where God dwells, stand with him in his presence? Who can go there? And the next verse answers, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, both. Not just clean hands on the outside. It's about the pure heart on the inside. That's what's required, both hands and a clean heart. That's what's required to stand in God's presence and to commune with him. And that's what brings us to today's passage, the sixth beatitude in Matthew chapter 5. 
Over the last several weeks, we've been moving through this section of Jesus' teaching, noting how all these Beatitudes, they are not isolated one-off statements, but rather they are all together a composite of what the Christian is, of what God has made Christians to be, the characteristics that he's put in us when he saved us, and therefore then what we are to grow into and, and pursue as we mature. And today, verse 8, Jesus brings up the heart. So let me read that verse, and then we're just going to, as usual, break it in half and discuss the two parts of the Beatitude. So this is Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So again, we'll just take the first part first. Blessed are the pure in heart. That word blessed, we've seen it every week. It's, it's the word that gives the title of the section, the Beatitudes, teachings about blessedness. And as we've noted, when you see the word blessed, you can rephrase it in your mind as to be congratulated and even envied for your good situation. That's what blessed means. Such that someone would look at you and say, wow, I wish I had what you have because you have the good life. Not the Pharisees, however nice and put together that might look on the outside. Don't envy that, Jesus is saying, but rather those who are pure in heart. Pure. A word that, like today, like back then, we use in two slightly different but very closely related ways. We say pure to mean, on the one hand, not mixed with anything else. Just one single ingredient. Like he was running on pure adrenaline. And what we mean there is nothing else but adrenaline. Just adrenaline was what was driving him on. So we mean that. But we also use pure, we, we say pure to mean without pollution or defilement. So pure gold is one ingredient in gold, but it also it, it is not having any dross in it. No dross, no no pollution of any sort in it. So we have one thing, a single thing that is unpolluted and clean. And if you think about it, then pure is consistently pure. Not sometimes or in some ways or in some categories pure, but then other times not. It's, it's one thing and it's one thing always. It, it's not a mix of things. There's no, there's no double-mindedness in it. There's no say, hypocrisy, where you, you present as one thing, but then you actually are another, and you show off as something else another time. No, pure is consistent. God calls us to be consistently, singularly, one thing, untainted, without any sinful pollution or any evil defilement, no ungodliness, no darkness, as God and his law defines all of that. Clean, holy, pure, in heart. His focus is on the heart, which is so important to realize and to remember. Christ and the entire Christian faith, in fact, is first and foremost a matter of the heart which immediately we need to define. Because in the Bible, heart, 
biblically speaking, is, is not a shorthand way of talking about feelings of affection or love or any kind of friendship. It's how we often use heart in our everyday conversations. And even when I just said that the Christian faith is a matter of the heart, some people hear that and immediately think, oh, he's talking about how the essence of Christianity is love. No. It's not what that means. I'm sure love is a huge place in the Christian faith, but the heart in the Bible is what we might call the human control center. The part of us that processes inputs of all various sorts, so it takes things in and processes them, forms thoughts and opinions, and then directs how it is that we act, how it is that we, that we live as we interact and react to the world. So the heart does indeed deal with feelings. The heart does feel, and it also thinks, forms opinions and, and desires and wants, and then it's the inner part of us that, that directs us to live and to act. So it's, you could say, the source or the spring out of which then bubbles up and flows out the rest of our life like a stream. The heart is the spring or the source. It's who you are, actually. Not what you do, who you are. And that's why, then, it's our main concern. If you have the carcass of a dead animal sitting in a spring somewhere, not only should you not drink the water that's downstream from that, But if you ever want to drink the water from downstream, you you shouldn't be constantly trying to filter that water. You should head back up to the spring and clean up the mess that's there. That's why Jesus points us not at the behaviors, the the life that flows out from that, not not at the living, but at the being. Who are you? What's going on here at the core, at, at, at the center? Head back to that, he points us back to that, and wants us to clean up the heart That's where he's pointing his finger constantly. Not at any kind of ritual, not at ceremony, not even at proper theology and understanding. Now, I am not speaking against, we'll we'll make this clear, I'm not speaking against obedience. I'm not speaking against understanding proper doctrine. Those things are critical. They're good and right. Just not the focus. We have to be clear about something because we often miss a really important, a really, really, really important reality here. Now, I realize as I'm talking to this audience, a lot of what I'm saying is pretty familiar to many of us, but not all of it is familiar to all of us. And even those here who think you know all this, let me just ask, do you live it? Or do sometimes you live as if you've kind of forgotten? Something really important here. The problem that many people and religions, even very common ones all right around us here in this valley, the problem is that people and religions put their focus on knowing the right things, understanding what's required, and then doing that, either intentionally or just by habit, kind of fall into that, because... Those things are visible. You know, what's required, do it. That's, you, can, you can see that. It's visible, 
It's easier. It's easier to be clear on it, and it seems to matter more. If I'm just raging in my mind at you, but I hold my tongue, we didn't end up in a fight. Nobody came to blows, everything's good. That, that seems better. If, if I'm looking at a woman on the street and I'm lusting after her, but I don't lay a hand on her, don't pursue her, no adultery happened, that's a good thing. And that is a good thing. Those, it's, that's a better world. However, Jesus, in this very same chapter, it's the same column in my Bible. Just right down here in Matthew chapter 5, is going to address those very two situations and say, that's good, but not enough. You held your tongue, good. Nobody came to blows, nobody went to jail. That's a good thing. You, you restrained yourself and didn't lay a hand on anybody and no adultery happened, that's good. But Jesus is going to say, right here on the same page in my Bible, that that person still is guilty of sin and still is liable for hell. Just the same. Because Jesus is looking at the heart. He calls that, if you will, murder in the heart and adultery in the heart. It's better that it didn't actually happen in the world. There are fewer painful consequences from that, yes, but the guilt remains. Holding your tongue, keeping your hands off, that's good. Remember, what, what did Psalm 24 say? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands. You must obey. You must have clean hands and a pure heart. Both. And actually the heart comes first. It's of greater priority because that's the spring that the clean hands come from. Being, not just doing. Being, not just knowing. In the heart, that's where God's eyes are looking. That's where God's call for purity lands. In the part of you that maybe no one else sees, especially if you are very good at hiding it. You know, there are some of us who are extremely reserved, extremely quiet, extremely not out there, not boisterous, and it seems like, man, they got some things together, but inside is a cauldron of wickedness. cauldron. And you know it. And so does the Lord. Maybe nobody else does. But the heart is what God is looking at and he sees what's really there. And maybe you've not thought of this before and it's challenging or maybe even a bit depressing. There is hope here in this coming provided by God. Not the kind that we sometimes think of. We sometimes kind of want God to grant on a curve. He doesn't do that. There's better hope. So hold on. There, there's some hope coming here. But for a lot of us here, you're familiar with this, and, and I just want to ask you, how's your heart? How's your heart? Not how's your behaving, how's your being Have you forgotten some of these things here and have you, have you kind of laid off keeping your heart 
and more been focusing on keeping the appearance that you're walking with the Lord. Guarding the heart is most important. That's the well from which your life springs. A pure heart that is holy, H-O-L-Y, and holy as in completely devoted to the Lord. Yielded to him and dependent on him. That is the spring of a sweet and pleasing good life. Imagine for a minute, just kind of let your mind run here into this because this is, this is good. Imagine what the effect of a pure heart is as it, as it pours out. If the spring is clean and what comes out of it is clean and living water and it comes out and wherever it runs, whatever it touches, it brings blessing and life. pours out on you and on those around you, your immediate friends and family, relatives, neighbors, workplace, community, just kind of spreads out and wherever it goes, it brings blessing in life. That would be marvelous. Pure hearts lead to clean hands and pure lives. We live out of the heart, so we're just saying, and and what happens when you do that? You, you find yourself increasingly thinking God's thoughts after him and wanting what God wants. And as you kind of step into the world, then it's as if you're kind of cutting with the grain of wood rather than trying to cut across it. God made the world and made us to work in a certain way. And as we are more aligned with him, things just go better. Things go well. For you and for those around you. We need to give this some thought and, and kind of be enticed by this, especially as we notice where we are in the flow of all these Beatitudes. So let's take a step back and, and notice something here. There are seven main Beatitudes, as we've talked about before. Beatitudes one to three are more about ourselves and our own brokenness. You recall as we looked at that, it, we, we, we put ourselves before God and, and realize how finite and how fallen we are and how even broken before people we are as we, as we are supposed to live for them and use our strength for them. We are meek there. Those, those first three Beatitudes kind of leave us broken ourselves and then take us to the fourth Beatitude, the hinge one right in the middle where we're seeing, I have a need and a hunger and thirst for righteousness. God, do something in me. And he does. You shall be satisfied. And in the second half, five, six, seven, where we are right now, there's a pivot there as a turn that is then pointing us towards how we are to live with others, to live before others. So the reason that this is important is that the second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, that is about us broken mourning over our sin. The sixth beatitude, pure in heart, is not the same thing. We often can talk about this as if it is. We often can hear everything that I just said, talking about God looking at the heart, talking about our, our need to be pure there, and what we can do is we can, we can sit there, we can hear that, we can kind of be broken by it, we can say, oh, I'm such, a, I'm such a, a sinful person, I'm not pure in heart, and I can end up kind of just turning it into the second one again. It's different. This is... 
not supposed to take us to the same spot of brokenness. It's actually supposed to be pointing us, this is how we are to engage with and live in the world. It's less about breaking us over our sin and more pointing out how it is that we live with others and towards others, pure in heart, which is a great foundation for blessing the city in which we live. That's, that's how this one is pointing. Not the second one, the sixth one is pointing. How do we bless those around us? How do we be a blessing to others? This positions us perfectly to do good to the city in a non-corrupted, non-hypocritical, authentic way. Because we aren't just righteous on the outside, and we aren't just working for some sort of an angle in some way trying to serve ourselves. We aren't, to use words, kissing up or posturing or posing. When we love and bless and help and tell the truth and give away our cloak and go the extra mile and turn the other cheek, all things that are coming up in the Sermon on the Mount, We do that, those clean hand sort of things, we do that from a spot of integrity, from a heart that actually is like that. So there's no duplicity, no double-mindedness, no hypocrisy. And that means there's stamina behind all this doing of good. It won't go away when things get hard. It won't go away when we get persecuted. It won't go away when, when what the culture wants shifts, what the culture defines as good changes. We'll still continue to do real good. We won't just be virtue signaling. We'll be actually virtuous as God defines virtue, not as a public opinion poll does. That's actual doing of real good. And it comes from a heart that is pure. Creates great good in the world. That's how we, the church, be salt and light in the world, by first having pure hearts that then produce real, genuine, long-lasting, clean hands that engages with the world to do real good, even when it's hard. Blessing others, even when it costs us. And that then is the foundation for bread and butter evangelism. When we do good, continually, consistently, even when the security camera doesn't work and no one will know otherwise. When we do good because we are different, people will wonder why. And we can tell them. That's a great thing purity in heart, a great thing for the world when the Christian lives purity in heart. So how did that become what you are? Because in a very real way, this does describe you. As with all the Beatitudes, this one is you, not completely, but it is. This is a Christian characteristic. If you're in Christ, you are pure in heart from the perspective of legal standing before God. That's who you are. 
He looks at you now, Christian, as 100% pure in heart, which is a shocking reality because the Bible says that otherwise our hearts are wicked and deceitful. But God looks at you, Christian, as 100% pure in heart. That's almost scandalous. But good news. We have fallen hearts that are dark by nature, just like everyone else is in the world, and we can approach God. That, that is amazing. This is at the core of the Christian gospel, something that needs to be grasped here. God requires purity in heart, and there is zero chance that any of us could make that happen. Think about that. God looks at you as 100% pure in heart. This is, this is the good news of the gospel. There is zero chance that you could make yourself that way. That is what is required, consistent singularity, wholly devoted to the Lord. That's what you are, and there's no way you did or even could have made yourself that way. It is possible, perhaps, that one could think about getting so tight on their behaviors that they were somehow managed to live completely righteously, I suppose. Good. Not good enough. Because you not only couldn't fix what you did yesterday or last year or last month, but you can't fix where he's actually looking, at the heart. God looks at that, and if this all is new to you, this is, this is the hope that I alluded to earlier. God looks at that and does not say, fix yourself, and when you've cleaned up your act, come and we'll talk. God says, you can't, and what's required is for you to say, help. And God then in mercy acted to solve our predicament by sending Christ, the only one who ever was pure in heart and pure in hands, and he went to the cross anyway. For you, you who trust him. That's the good news of the gospel. The gospel is not a recipe for you to follow to make yourself pure. It is not an assignment of the things that you are to do to make yourself acceptable to God. It is news about what God did to declare you 100% pure by putting all of your impurity on Jesus at the cross. That's the gospel. Many people misunderstand that, but that is the gospel, that God put all of your impurity on his son and put his son's purity on you and declares you clean when you trust him only. That's the gospel. You stand pure before God. That is worth remembering and glorying in. And then notice what God means to do with that truth. He doesn't just put it over there and say, and one day you'll experience that when you die and go to heaven to be with me. He uses that truth today, right now, to draw you on in the purifying process of today. You, you stand 100% pure, and you are in the process of being purified, having the dross burned out. The fire is on, and the dross is being burned out every day. And how does he do that? 
How does he do that? How do you engage with that? This is the part, maybe this is new to you, or Christian, maybe this is what you forget. How do you engage with, how does God engage you with the purifying process of burning out the dross? Not by telling you to live like a Pharisee. And I don't mean that as an insult. Pharisee can sometimes, sometimes be almost a curse word. I don't mean that as an insult. I mean not by telling you to live very carefully cleaning your hands. Hear this if this is new to you. And Christian, this is not new to you. Hear this. I'm going to put a little theological term out here. What I'm talking about is works righteousness, if you need that term. Christians, we slump into this all the time. God wants to engage with the process of burning the dross out of your life. You stand pure, and he from that says, and now let me engage with you to purify you in the day-to-day. And he does not tell you, to paraphrase the end of Colossians 2, and here's how that happens. Don't taste, don't touch, don't even look at. That seems to be good. That seems to work. We slump into that. But the passage ends, but it has no effect. Doesn't work. You don't engage with that process. God does not engage you with the process of burning the dross out of you, of purifying you now in the day-to-day by telling you to live really carefully like a Pharisee. Instead, Colossians chapter 3, he tells you to live like a Christian. Do you know Colossians 3? One of the most important passages in all of the Bible. The beginning of Colossians 3 and the end of Colossians 2 make a critical connection. Not like a Pharisee. I'm doing like this because in my Bible it's at the bottom of the page and then the top of the page. Not like a Pharisee, but like a Christian. Setting your inner self, your, your affections and your thoughts on Christ and on things above. Setting your inner self, your thoughts and your affections and your desires and your longings on all that he has done for you because he declared you 100% pure. And in declaring you 100% pure, he said, son, daughter, heir, citizen of heaven, satisfied, filled one, you have an inheritance, you have a kingdom, you have blessing, you have everything and you have me. That's what I've made for you. That's who you are. That's what I've given. See that. Set your heart and your mind on that. You live like that. You see how different that is than don't touch that, don't taste this, stay away from that, don't look at her, bite your tongue. Completely different. Completely different. You live like a Christian, not like a Pharisee. And then the passage continues. Because when you've done that, this changes. God washes you, scrubs the impurities out, bit by bit by bit, day by day by day. Fire burns out the dross. And then in Colossians 3, a little further down, then he comes to clean hands. 
That is the order of change. That's how you live like a Christian. And God wants to engage you with that. But notice critically where it starts with what he did for you at the cross to make you pure. And then he says, set your mind on all that I have already done and all that is already true of you and all that will one day be gloriously your complete reality. See that. In other words, you can kind of roll that into our our existing beatitudes here and you can say in really different words what he says is will you see your need and will you see what I've provided and will you call out to me and I will fill you and I will satisfy you I give you righteousness and you are filled like the fourth beatitude God does that as we set our our eyes our our hearts, our minds, all of our inside on him and on what he has done. Okay, so how do you do that? How do you set your, your insides on things that are above? Well, really quickly, because this should be familiar to you. Through some very ordinary means, prayer and the scripture and fellowship with other Christians who are about prayer and the scripture. Ordinary means. There's no alternative. You can't say, or I walk out in the desert and wait to get struck by a lightning bolt. Nope. Prayer and scripture and fellowship with other Christians who are about prayer and scripture. That's where God meets us as we call out to him in prayer, as we look at what he says is true of us and him in the scriptures. We set our, our affections, our minds, our desires, our hopes on these things written here, speaking to him with other people, engaged all along in, Lord, help. Lord, help. Make these things true of me, Lord. Lord. That's how we set our minds, our hearts, our insides on things that are above, living like a Christian, not like a Pharisee. And God burns off the dross and increasingly makes us like Jesus, pure. Now, because you are pure. A big part of that, a big part of the setting our eyes, our minds, our hearts on the things that are real, things that are coming is mentioned in the second half of this beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart because the pure in heart will experience the personal presence of God. The pure in heart will experience the personal presence of God. The second half of the verse goes even so far as to say they will see God, and that's true. But I've put it like I did to kind of help us think about what the big deal is in seeing God. It is not just like seeing some celebrity. Like maybe you go to a jazz game and, and the Lakers are in town and they're, they're playing LeBron James and you say, well, there he is in the flesh. Wow, I saw LeBron last night. 
Maybe you were even so lucky as you got to go up to the court somehow or another and you got an autograph for him. Wow, he touched the pen that you're touching. And you saw him right there. And then that's it. That's it. That's not what we're talking about. Seeing God is about experiencing his personal presence. It's about relating. Relating now and relating one day. And it's different now. Now the Bible also says that no one can see the face of God and live. That's from famous incident in Exodus 33. Moses there interacting with God. And God hit him in a crack in the rock so they wouldn't see his face. He, he kept something from Moses, from Moses' protection. But earlier in that very same chapter, we read how on the tent of meeting, this is in the very same chapter, on the tent of meeting, God and Moses met and they spoke, it says, face to face. Which seems obvious, given what said later in the chapter, and because God descended to the tent of meeting as a cloud, that what face-to-face -face means is interpersonally, directly, without an intermediary, like to a friend, it says. Moses didn't see God's face physically speaking with his physical eyes. He experienced his personal presence. They related like friends. That's the way we who are pure in heart see God now in this life. We're able to meet with him and to experience his personal presence directly like speaking to a friend. That's a privilege that's yours, Christians, one for you in your salvation by God who wanted that with you. God did that because God wanted to hang with you. Think about that. God created this whole scenario in which you can experience him personally and relate to him because that's what God wanted to have happen. What that means in life is that Every moment, every day, you never walk alone. You walk through every moment of every day with him. Again, referencing Moses, he's described in Hebrews 11, you walk with him as seeing him who is invisible. That's what said of Moses there. He's invisible. God, God can't be seen, but you can see him. Moses saw him. You See him now. You walk with him, seeing the invisible one everywhere. You know God. You talk to and you hear from God. This, if you're a Christian, you've experienced this, but it is perhaps a little challenging to remember what it was like when you didn't experience it. This is odd. Religious people have a concept of God. You have an experience with the real God. That's different. 
It's kind of hard to define. It's hard to, it's hard to even put into English language because there are all kinds of spiritual people who have all kinds of spiritual experiences. And so it can seem like if you're just describing it, you had an experience over here, you had an experience over here, it's all the same. Yeah, but it's not. Sometimes you'll find in writing a person, I remember one just remarkable description of, of a woman who had been a witch describing this is in the early 20th century, describing what she encountered when she first came into a true church and then what she, what, what she experienced when she became a Christian. She said, first, she was very familiar with spiritual powers, but she came into a true church and she said, it weirded her out because she felt a bright power that she knew was different. How do you describe that in English? Well, just like that. What does it feel like? I don't know. She did. She's very familiar with power, experience, of knowing things, of seeing things. She said, this is different. And then she describes how she came alive in that. That's your reality. Maybe you didn't see quite the contrast that she saw, but that's, re that's reality. Maybe it's been decades since it happened to you, but you sit right now in a spot, and you will stand up, and you will walk out of the door, and you will get into your car, and you will drive home, and you experience everything this afternoon, you go to work this week or school or whatever, seeing him who is invisible. That's amazing. Because... As you walk through life, you talk to him and you hear from him and you perceive that he is real and you know that he is involved in this world, that he knows every single detail of your life, that he actually perceives everything that's going on with you. And you see in all those things, you see his hand of comfort behind you. You see his hand of leadership directing. You see his hand of protection sheltering. You see his, his hand of provision meeting your needs. You see all of his action in all of the world, all around you, and it's all real and he's real and you know know that that's remarkable to see God an experience that is enhanced and deepened and sweetened or sabotaged and short circuited by the nature of your pursuit of purity in heart. Which is why he puts all this together here. Because to see God is sweet and wonderful. But your vision of God is clarified or clouded by however much of the world is filling your heart right now. That's true and you know it. Because some of, some of us here, may, you may be a Christian, I don't know, but some of us here are just filled up to here with the world. And you can't see anything of God. And maybe even right now you're wondering, when will this guy be done? <laughs> I got about three minutes. <laughs> but if that's you, that's not good. There's, there's so much of the world that's filled up your heart that you can't see anything of the one who is life. 
Go ahead, try to find life and all the money that you can accumulate. See if you can find it. See if you can find it in the second house or the third car or whatever. Go ahead, try. As the world fills up your heart, your vision gets clouded. And God puts this right in here to encourage you with this promise and and encourage you to fight for purity, to to scrub off the the scum that's on the surface there with the the promise and hope that behind that you'll find him. Beneath it is, is something worth seeing. The one who is life. The purity that he requires and what pleases him and honors him is also that which does you great good and does great good to the world. But this is a challenge because it may not seem like that because all around us is shiny stuff. The world is full of shiny stuff. And the fight to keep your heart is really hard. The fight against all the stuff that wants to seep in here. It it is hard to to guard your heart, to take every thought captive and submit it to Christ and his truth, and to nip in the bud every little bit of drift, to speak truth to yourself from God's word, rather than let the, the worldly monologue tell you what's going on. That is a battle moment by moment and day by day and it is so hard and it would be just frankly easier to take the oar up out of the water and let the boat drift. Especially when you look around you see a lot of people seem to be doing pretty fine. And they're not fighting this battle at all. God wants to hold up in front of you Seeing me as life, communing with me as life. Don't give up. Don't miss out on the experience of the personal presence of God with you. That's where fullness of joy is found and rest and hope and meaning and perspective. You can have all the money you want. You can have all the health you can can handle. You can have all of the stuff and it goes away. I was really thankful I had a brief period this week when I felt like super sick. Weird. Super sick. And I don't know if you had this experience, but in those moments when I feel super sick, I kind of feel like, oh, I don't care about anything else. And I came out of that and I thought, thank you for that. Because it reminded me Chase what you want in the world. Maybe God will be kind to you and make you super sick of it. And show you none of that matters. What matters is you personally commune with the God who is life now and one day. Because the pinnacle of this promise still awaits us one day in heaven. Now we see dimly as through a glass. The Bible says. We're, we're kind of walking through life as if it's one of those house of mirrors where you know, all the mirrors that are 
all different. And you can tell what you're looking at, but it's all distorted, right? It's, it's too tall or it's too fat or it's too squashed up. But you can see what it is. That's the way, given our fallenness and given what the world is like, that's the way we see God now, distorted through a glass dimly. But one day we shall see him face to face. You'll see him with your own eyes, Christian. Physically, really. 1 John 3 reminds us that he will return and we will become like him, Christ-like in character, finally and fully, because it says, we shall see him as he is. Not distorted, for real. Your physical eyes will see the physical body of the God and man Jesus, and that will be marvelous, not just because of the physical sight only, but because of the physical sight also, finally. You're going to see him physically then. And that will be just the beginning of the eternal experience of his personal presence, no longer distorted by the effects of the fall. Can you imagine it? You can take the oar out of the water and wherever you drift will be glory. The battle ended. You will see him as he actually is. God right before you, glorified, relating to you like a friend completely. He for whom your heart was made, never hidden from sight again. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let me pray. Lord, open our eyes and help us to behold marvelous things in your word, namely you. Lead us to cry and to call out to you. Help us to set our insides on you and on what you've done for us. Meet us and satisfy us. Lord, show yourself to your people and call in those who are wandering, either those who aren't Christians yet, those who perhaps are, don't know if they are or not, those of us who are but are wandering, call people back to yourself. Thank you, Lord, for your declaring of your people pure and for your continuing work to purify. Build your church to your honor. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801 Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.